Hello and welcome to the HPP Podcast. This is your host, Arden Castle, and each week we explore a new topic related to the Health Promotion Practice Journal, whether it's demystifying publishing, breaking down a new article, or discussing public health-related topics with other editorial board members. We hope you enjoy each week's exploration into health promotion practice. Today, I'm joined by two of the authors of HPP's article titled A Framework for Integrating Arts, Science, and Social Justice into Culturally Responsive Public Health Communication and Innovation Designs. Theo Edmonds and Hannah Drake, do you mind introducing yourselves today and saying where you're calling in from? Hi, my name is Hannah Drake. I'm calling in from Louisville, Kentucky. I am the Chief Creative Officer at Idols X Lab. And I'm Theo Edmonds. I'm calling in from Denver, Colorado. I am currently the Associate Dean for Transdisciplinary Research and Innovation at the University of Colorado Denver College of Arts and Media. Excellent. Thank you both for your introductions. And this paper is centered around Louisville. So can you sort of set the stage for the city and the role of billboards there? Louisville is certainly currently a city in transition. I'm sure that many people that are listening are aware of Breonna Taylor and the protests that took place last year, which certainly impacted our city, Breonna Taylor was a 26-year-old Black woman that was murdered in her home by the Louisville Metro Police Department. That set off uh, 365 days of protest in Louisville. But even before Breonna Taylor, Louisville is a city that has been impacted by racism and redlining and all of the things that are impacted by racism. It's a very divided city. I believe in 2014, Louisville was the fourth most segregated city in America when they just completed the census and the information came out this year. The state of Kentucky is in the top 10 of one of the widest states in the country. And so there's a lot of work that needs to be done here in Louisville. Within the context of Louisville and Kentucky in general, can you expand more upon Smoketown's incredible history and its place within Louisville's history? Sure. So Smoketown is the oldest continuous African-American neighborhood that is established in Louisville. It is over 150 years old. It was formed by Black people that were formerly enslaved. Many of the homes there are shotgun homes. There aren't many grocery stores or businesses in this particular area, but it is an area that is rich in culture. Muhammad Ali trained in Smoketown. We have a long established business called Shirley Mays that instituted uh, the Black Jockey series at her restaurant. So Smoketown has a lot of culture and richness to it. And also it is where my family was born and raised or four generations of my family have lived in Smoketown. So it's a neighborhood that is near and dear to my heart. And then from the, the scientific side of things, at the time that this article was written, I was actually at the School of Public Health there at the University of Louisville. And just as some geographic context, the University of Louisville School of Public Health sits directly across 
a street from the boundary of Smoketown. And also that all the health sciences campuses for the University of Louisville are in that location. And it's very interesting that because of many of the racist policies and so forth that Hannah mentioned earlier, wherever you see a downtown health sciences center that is a research center, university center, often it has a neighborhood that is right next to it that because of racist policies have been displaced for that health center to be there. And yet the residents of those communities do not enjoy what such close proximity to health and health services should offer. And so it was that part of that context was a driver behind this. And that was also combined with the fact that over the last several years, even pre-COVID, we've seen over and over again how public health has had a problem in communicating optimally with the communities it seeks to serve. And that communications challenge is also keeping a lot of communities unhealthy and causing them in some cases, you know, even to have shorter life expectancies. So this idea around communication and trusted communication and what that means in the context in which Hannah described was part of the foundation of what prompted this article. Given these racist policies and the way that they've shaped the community, can you tell me about other ways that your approach has been inspired and what experiences as authors have laid the groundwork for your own work in this community? Yeah, Hannah, would you like to tell a little bit about our trip to Senegal and that experience? Because I think that that is at the essence of where this idea started. So I think before we get into the science, it'd be great to have that context and, and where you're the origin of this came from. Sure. So in 2016, Theo and I, along with a group called Roots and Wings, which was a group of about 10 Black artists, which were dancers, singers, DJ, poets, we took a trip to Dakar, Senegal. And we were working on the connections between West Africa, Eastern Kentucky, and Louisville, Kentucky. And when we went there, certainly I'd never left the United States. It was my first time having a passport. And I was able to bring my daughter with me on this trip. And in Senegal, unlike in America, you're on a bus and we're going to see all these things and nothing is close. You're on the bus for a very, very long time. So while we were on the bus, I started to notice all of the billboards and take pictures of them. And I was shocked coming from America that in Senegal, the billboards had Black people on them and they were just doing regular things. They were just regular part of advertising and they weren't the face of some illness or the face of diabetes or the face of heart disease. They were just Black people on billboards advertising things, living a regular life, which I had never seen in America. So I started taking pictures of that, but even beyond the billboards, art that simply looked like me was everywhere. And I remember we visited a church and outside of the church, there were angels and the angels had locks and braids and their noses looked like mine and their lips looked like mine. And I'd never seen this before on a church. And when we went inside of the church, they had stained glass windows of the apostles 
and all of the apostles were black and I had never seen anything like that before. So I started taking pictures and I was just amazed that everywhere you went in Dakar and other places in Senegal, they had art that reflected the people that lived there. And it was something that I had never experienced. And so when we returned to America and we came back to Louisville, Josh, who is the CEO of Idos X Lab, who I work with, we started walking around the Smoketown neighborhood taking pictures. And we were taking pictures for our website. But as we were taking pictures, we started to notice the billboards. And the billboards were for drug sniffing dogs, sell your diabetes strips, a plethora of billboards for very cheap lawyers. So we started taking pictures of all these billboards and I thought, why not change the billboards out and put up a different message? And we started having community meetings and we asked the community, do you even notice the billboards? And in fact, all of the people that came to the meeting said that they did notice the billboards. And we asked them, what do the billboards reflect to you? And I, I'll never forget one person said, it reflects that this is a community with low self-esteem. And because my family was born and raised in Smoketown, my daughter learned to ride a bike in Smoketown, learned to tie her shoes in Smoketown. This is where we lived, worked, played. I've worked in Smoketown for over 16 years at that time. So I, I knew this community and I knew it was not a community with low self-esteem. But this is what was being reflected back to the community. And that is how one poem at a time came to be, that we just thought, why not ask the community what they want to say back to their community? And why not take pictures of people that actually live in this community or have been in this community or connected to this community and put the images up on a billboard? And it truly was a life-changing for that community. And on the science side of that, we started also thinking about how did these billboards come to be in Smoketown like this when they weren't in some of the more affluent neighborhoods? And indeed, it had to do a lot with land policy and governmental enforcement of land policy. And the more we looked into it, there was quite a bit of literature that Black scholars in particular had lifted up that looked at this kind of rapacious predatory commerce and its impact on the well-being of Black communities and Los Angeles and different places. So building up on that scholarship and also thinking about critical race theory and its application to messaging and who gets to brand a community and how do they brand it. These are all kind of big and important questions. And one of the things that was kind of revelatory, at least for me, as we started into this, there was a youth development researcher out of Oakland, California, Dr. Sean Jenright, who has done just incredible work over the years. And really is, he's mentioned several times in the article, because it is such a, a, the clarity with which he brings to the idea of social toxins in an environment that operate in the same way that lead puts an environmental toxin into the environment, this kind of 
negative messaging puts a social toxin into the environment that has an impact on people who are being forced to endure this kind of messaging every single day. And so with that in mind, we started looking at things like also hope theory, which is not optimism. Optimism is the belief that in the future things are going to work out. It's a belief. Whereas hope is an agency question. So can you set goals for yourself that are in the future and uncertain, compile the resources, and then use those resources to create multiple pathways to reach that goal. So this idea of social toxins and the agency, and then how this communication that is connected to commerce and advertising influence the well-being of a community. All of these ideas started coming together that led us to kind of thinking about what does social justice orientation in science and in artistic practice of this kind of work look like. And over the course of several months and in concert with community partners like Nishan Tribu, who has been also a long-term Smoketown business owner and Smoketown family, we started putting together a lot of ideas with some of the other of my colleagues there at the university that led to what became the motif framework. And we chose the word motif because there was five kind of stages that we were looking at. And motif is also a artistic term that is used. It means a recurring theme in kind of in literature. And so those five stages are the M was looking at how do we map policies that create these social toxins using things like critical consciousness and identifying the hurdles to community agency. And then the O is how do we begin with those policies and social toxins mapped? How do we begin to orient through the arts toward a culturally responsive approach for messaging and commerce in a community? The T was for then using that cultural responsive approach to begin translating that into actions. And that's where a lot of the cultural well-being science concepts like eudaimonic well-being, self-determination, hope, a sense of belonging, all help to inform the scientific bridge between this type of activity and community well-being and the logic model. And then the I and the F in motif was began the iteration of this process. And Hannah and her team have iterated on these billboard messages, what Hannah, about five different rounds now? Yes, yes, yep. And then, you know, the final step of that is to pull all of this through and to foster well-being. And that is looking at like longer term, how do things like collective action, socio-cultural frames, stress coping, and then also positive commerce versus this kind of predatory commerce. If we begin to think about advertising and commerce in this type of way, what might be possible to introduce uh, well-being strategies at scale just through the messages that people see in commerce in the community. So that was kind of all the pieces that came together for this. Excellent. Thank you for breaking down that framework. And I do want to point out that in your implications for practice section, you do mention that artists may act as catalysts for increasing community agency and action. And so I'd love to talk more about this idea of community-based reclaiming of a neighborhood. And in this article, you also use the phrase claiming agency over process when describing the third step of the framework. So can you talk a little bit more about that step? 
Yeah, absolutely. So what we were reflecting is what we were seeing happening through Hannah's leadership. So Hannah, I'll pass the baton to you here to talk about some of the strategies and thoughts that were deployed here in bringing in the community and shaping these messages, and even, even down to the very first messages that went up on the billboard. We certainly had community meetings. You know, I'm a firm believer, and I know Theo is as well. Things like this thrive if the community is involved at the beginning, if the community supports it. And the community certainly did support one poem at a time. So we had several community meetings. The billboards were photos of people that lived in or were connected to the Smoketown community. The words on the billboards were the words from the community. And then the one billboard that seemed to resonate what the Smoketown community was, you are worthy, worthy of everything. And that quote was put on the side of a building for a mural that said Smoketown is worthy. We put it on fans for the community. The community really latched on to this belief and this understanding that, wait, we live in this community. We are worthy of everything. And at that particular time, as life would have it at that particular time, there were two liquor stores opening in the community. And this, as Theo had mentioned, is a community that's 50 feet from the largest medical campus in Louisville. And many of the people are impacted by alcohol-related illnesses. And so this community certainly didn't need two more liquor stores in the community. And at that time, the policy or the rule was if somebody was opening up a liquor store, then they had to put a notice in the newspaper and they had to put a notice on the building where liquor would be sold. And the notice at that time could be any size. So it could be very small where no one would ever know that a liquor store was opening in their community. And because the community had kind of rallied around this, we are worthy of everything. And the community championed that Theo had mentioned a shand kind of grabbed a hold of that and grabbed hold of this cause and said, we do not need any more liquor stores in our community. Yes, we do want businesses in the Smoketown community, but we want businesses that will allow this community to thrive. And so we met with government officials and we said, this law, this policy you have, it's not fair because someone riding by will not know that a liquor store is opening because you can put it on any size paper and this is not fair to the community. And in this day and age with the internet and everything, it's rare that someone is going to pick up a physical newspaper and read through the classifieds to find an ad that says a liquor store is opening in their community. So this is not fair to the community. And they agreed with that and they changed the policy. And so now in Louisville, if the liquor store is opening, it must be on poster-sized canary yellow paper that says that a liquor store is opening or wants to open in this community. And that allows the community to notice it. And then if they want to fight against it. And in fact, that is what Smoketown did. And Smoketown sent over 5,000 letters to Frankfurt to government officials to let them know that they did not want the liquor store. And in fact, both those liquor stores were turned down 
from opening in Smoketown. And so it didn't just happen in Smoketown. When it came time for the Family Dollar, Family Dollar wanted to sell beer in the Family Dollars in the West End of Louisville. And the West End of Louisville is predominantly African-American liquor store on every corner impacted by redlining and racism and didn't need any more liquor stores and certainly didn't need the family dollar to sell alcohol in the family dollar. And they contacted me, Shannon said, how did you stop that from happening in Smoketown? Because we want to replicate that. And they, Shan was able to work with them to replicate that process. And in fact, stopped 26 family dollars in the West End from selling beer and alcohol. And even to where I live, and this happened this year, another liquor store was opening in my community. And I said, you know what? I have a tool that can fight that if you all want to fight that. And in fact, we did. We stopped another liquor store from happening in this community. And that happened this year. And just this week, I was contacted by another community very close to me, the Taylor uh, Berry community. And they asked me, Hannah, how were you able to stop that in your community? Because we need to stop that here. So what we've done and what Theo has done with his research has created this blueprint for other communities. It didn't just impact Smoketown. It is in fact impacting all of Louisville. That is some really exciting and really empowering work that you've done. And even in one of our planning calls, you mentioned to me that when these projects don't involve the community, that that's a telltale sign that it won't be sustainable. And I think that that really speaks to success in other communities and that it's been able to be applied and moved to these other locations in order to stop other businesses from selling alcohol in these communities that are already impacted and already experiencing other forms of racism. And if I can say, Arden, when I was contacted, like I said this week, and the very first question I asked was, does the community want a liquor store? Because if the community wants it, there is no point in you fighting it. But if the community is behind you and saying no, then you will win. And, And in fact, she said, no, the community doesn't want it. And at that point is when I knew, okay, I can help you. But if you had told me anything different, then I will never go against what the community wants. Yeah, definitely. It comes down to what the community wants at the end of the day. And Theo, I want to bring you into this conversation about the idea of culturally responsive data. As Hannah just said, you know, we need to know if the community wants this or not. Can you kind of speak to that idea of culturally responsive data being used in communication innovation in public health? Yeah, I think that's probably one of the most important evolving fields in population health analytics right now. Typically, you know, we have thought about culture as being kind of this amorphous thing that has a life that it's really hard to wrap your hands around it. But indeed, it's really a powerful construct. In fact, the World Health Organization has gone so far as to say that the systematic neglect of culture and health and health care is the single greatest barrier to the advancement of standards of health and healthcare worldwide. And that was an article by Napier in The Lancet in 2014. And so this culture is something that is a powerful construct that really influences how we make meaning in the world. And 
we know kind of what the white cisgender straight male version of questions that get asked of data sets are. But what about, you know, the black lesbian in Appalachia or the single rural Latinx mother in Colorado? Their lived experience is a framework that informs the questions that they ask of any data set or of anything that they are handed down as a story from a healthcare system. And so we have to realize that the more opportunities we have for understanding how value is being created through the lived experience of other people, that's only going to make us richer. It's not an either or, it's a both and, both and thing. It's just that we know a lot more about one version of it. So the quest here is how do we then begin creating culturally responsive data? Well, that means that we've got to set aside some of the elitism that typically accompanies the academy when it approaches research. I'm a very non-traditional researcher. Even community-based participatory research, in many times that I've looked at it, often ends up still being about the research. It's not really about making the impact in the community. It's a research question about a research question. And so I'm really encouraged when I see a lot of women, and a lot of times it's women of color, scholars and researchers who are now entering into the public health field to bring a different lens to evidence, to bring a different lens to what it means to interpret data and through that work, be able to influence policy. And so when I talk about culturally responsive data, I think it's something that's very much evolving. A couple of the areas that I think are also important to be aware of is there have been black scholars that have developed things like the Pen3 culture model that has been used to translate science, health science, into different cultures around the world. It looks at cultural empowerment, cultural identity, and cultural relationships and expectations. Because you, you know, you can imagine that breastfeeding in, in rural Portugal is a very different proposition than how it might be viewed, for instance, on the Upper East Side of Manhattan. And so this idea of culture becomes really powerful. And one of the things that has stuck with me also from that Senegal trip that Hannah mentioned a while ago is I got to go spend some time in the pediatric cancer hospital with some of its staff while we were there. And it's a tertiary referral center for about six different countries. And they were having very high mortality rates from the kids with cancer who they were treating, higher than normal. And what they ultimately discovered, they had the equipment, they had the expertise, but what they discovered, there was a couple of things. In a lot of rural communities that are for their kind of their economy, both their their literal economy and their social economy are built around the family unit and every person in the family has a specific role. When a child has to come get treated for cancer in a city the size of Dakar means that one of the adults that is dependent upon by the family unit are gonna have to come with that child. And so it was really kind of, you know, messing with the entire structure of a family. So it was really about more than just the treatment. And then there was also this notion that was implicit in the way health care in the Western sense was approaching this by saying to a lot of folks that, you know, the way you've been doing it is wrong and you have to do it the way we're saying it because it's better. And so when you approach somebody by their deficits like that, it's not an invitation to a partnership. And so what the head of the 
cancer hospital shared with me that they ultimately discovered that the most powerful thing that really turned the corner to get the kids there sooner so they could reduce mortality rates was that she called it the neighborhood auntie, that every single community had a neighborhood auntie, that a person who on paper had no formal authority in the community, but had ultimate influence. And I think that a lot of healthcare is just waking up to understanding that that's how a lot of communities work. They don't, I think we in healthcare don't quite know how to engage that yet, but we're learning. And I do see a lot of promising signs around that happening in a lot of places. And I I certainly think that the last couple of years with the racial justice reckoning has only accelerated and the priority that that is for the health and healthcare sector. And it's encouraging to think about where we might be able to go with that. The last thing I'll say about culturally responsive data is when we typically think about data, we think about it as something that is completely objective. We don't think about the interpretation. So like blood pressure is blood pressure. Your heartbeat is your heartbeat. So those are objective data points. But that is not always true when we're talking about well-being. Well-being is incredibly subjective. And what may foster well-being for me may not be the same things for you. And I think the more that we can engage in a transdisciplinary model where we're pulling in from psychology and sociology and other areas that we need and should depend upon as partners in this work alongside of the various diverse communities in which public health has to work. Bringing in those other disciplines allows us to find new ways of measuring things that are subjective. And then we layer on top of that the qualitative pieces that so many of our public health professionals have really done a tremendous job with. It really does point to the potential for a different future. I think that power reinforces power. So the healthcare system is a very strong construct. And, you know, we're the only country in the West who has commodified healthcare in the same way we commodify bread on the shelf in a grocery store. It's not that different. And, you know, that's a problem. That's a big problem that it's keeping people It's keeping people sick and it's making communities endure things that are completely avoidable. And so the idea of culturally responsive data is not just a research question we're after, but it's a life-saving question. And it's going to mean that there's going to be a healthy dose of humility that population health, public health, and healthcare providers and researchers are going to have to recognize that they only have a piece of the puzzle and that they have to have a partner in this. The very idea of public health has public in it. So if the public's not your partner in the work that you're doing, you're only working with part of the equation and that's not going to get us to the next place that we need to be. Absolutely. I definitely agree that it needs to be coming from an interdisciplinary place. And I kind of want to tie in how you've mentioned the trip abroad and how it was introducing different perspectives and all these structural assumptions and biases that were relieving the pitfalls to that care. And we want to talk about how that trip involved all these different artists that Hannah got to enjoy the company and be abroad. And the article closes by stating artists can play important roles in uncovering and communicating the deep multidimensional narratives held in the places and spaces where people live, work, learn, pray, and play. 
So can you elaborate on this idea that people have the ability to create the spaces that they want? Theo, you were just talking about this requirement for public health to be partnered with the community and with the public. So can you kind of speak to this ending of your paper? That last line there is inspired by my colleague, Hannah, and a revolutionary poem that she wrote called Spaces, about who spaces are designed for and what spaces are designed to do. So I think Hannah is the expert in, in this question. So I, I will bow to the expert. Thank you, Theo. So as Theo mentioned with the poem Spaces, I wrote about the spaces we create and how we can create those spaces to be inclusive or exclusive and how often people who are marginalized stand in spaces that they know were not designed for them. And I can recall last year during the Breonna Taylor protest, which I participated in, the Castleman statue was being taken down. And this is a Confederate statue that's in Cherokee neighborhood here. And I believe the statue has been up for 107 years. And last year they decided to remove that statue. And I felt compelled to go to that space and stand in front of that statue and record my poem spaces. And as I was doing this, and I was just doing it so I could have this recording, but as I was doing it, people started coming out of their houses and people who were walking stopped and gathered around to listen to what I was saying. And at the end of the poem, some people were crying and people clapped. And I certainly didn't do it for a performance. I just needed to stand in that space where for 107 years stood a Confederate statue. And now here I am as a black woman standing in this space. And I told people the way you feel today is how you can curate spaces where people can feel like that all the time. And you can tell a more fuller, richer history of Kentucky. And a part of that, and that I believe that was the year that Josh Miller and I, who I said I work with that Idols X Lab had started working on the Unknown Project. And we wanted a way to highlight the names of Black men, women, and children that were enslaved in Kentucky. And we created this space with artists called On the Banks of Freedom. And it sits on the banks of the Ohio River, two benches that are inscribed with the names of people that were enslaved in Kentucky. We didn't go fishing for these names. In fact, when people heard about this project, they started sending us names, names of people that their families had enslaved, names that were hidden from history, names that were in ledgers that they kept on bookshelves. And finally, because of this project, they were ready to release these names to history. And these benches are engraved with those names and on the platform, our footprints and underneath the footprints are names of people that were enslaved in Kentucky. And this space has become the space of reconciliation and healing and understanding and history. And just a few weeks ago, I was at this space having coffee and conversation 
and a white woman comes to the space and she saw the ad on social media that we were going to have coffee and conversation at On the Banks of Freedom. And she comes very unassuming. And, and I thought, okay, she's here to have coffee and that's nice. And she says, Hannah, I'd like to share a story with you. And I thought, okay, well, this might be interesting. And her and I sit on the bench together. And she starts telling me how her family enslaved people in Glasgow, Kentucky. And then she says, so the Civil War broke out and my family lost everything. And the very people that they enslaved happened to take them in during the time when they had nothing. And I said, the story you have told, it didn't just free you, it opened up a doorway for someone to find their family. But that's the power of art. And that's the power of creating space that we've created this space where people can come share these stories about a very, very difficult and troubling time in America. But it's not just on the banks of freedom or taking down the statues. We can create those spaces all the time. We get to decide as human beings, we get to decide that. It's not up to anybody else but us. And so how can we put art and billboards in neighborhoods that impact and influence neighborhoods? I never imagined in my wildest dreams that putting a billboard up would, to this day, impact communities that don't want liquor stores in their communities. I never imagined that would happen all because of a billboard that said you are worthy. That's the power of art. It's bigger than just a painting or a poem. Art truly can shift a society. Wow. Thank you, Hannah. And I'm just speechless. That is a beautiful story and absolutely inspiring of what communities can do when they are loved in the way that they are meant to be loved and appreciated and encouraged to create spaces, as you said, to have these hard conversations. And yet we can do that all the time. And so I think that that was just a beautiful end to our episode today. And I want to thank you both so much for your time and your wisdom that you shared today on this episode. So thank you both. Thank you. Thank you, Arden. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of the HPP podcast. If you enjoyed this content, let us know by tagging us or responding to our promotions on Twitter and LinkedIn. You can also find out more about the Health Promotion Practice Journal from Sage or Sophie's websites. All of these links can be found on the podcast website at anchor.fm forward slash health dash promotion dash practice. Take care and have a great day.